So we've been doing these 15-minute live streams every day on Facebook, and we're calling them Ground Bites. And that 15-minute format allows us to get really to the point and talk about the nuts and bolts of things like breeding and business. So in this episode, I have compiled all of the ground bites over the week that Melissa was gone, so I had to have guests to fill up these spots because I don't want to talk to myself. So we decided to compile all of those episodes over the last week and give them to you guys as a long-form podcast for you guys to enjoy. So this week, we have... James Lewis talking about sand boas. We have Riley Jimison talking about mad hogs. We have Jake Bratz talking about popwind pythons and Ryan Sullivan talking about retic. So I hope you guys enjoy this and there'll be more of these in the future. Thanks for listening. So today we have another guest here. And uh, Melissa won't be with us for probably the next week. She may chime in every once in a while. We'll see. But we have James Lewis of Simply Serpents. James, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm really glad to have you because you and your whole family, to be honest, have been super supportive of us. And we really, really, really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no problem. I love watching the podcast. My eight-year-old daughter wants to watch it every time I have it on. <laughs> so. Well, I will have to keep our act cleaner then. Uh, I'm her dad. She's used to it. <laughs> I always feel bad when people say that their kids listen or something like, oops. Uh, my, my daughter knows what to say and what not to say. She'll hear something bad and she'll go, yeah, I'm not supposed to say that. Good that's job. reasonable. Yeah, you're, you're going to hear it eventually. Just don't use it, I guess. So uh, what do you work with? Uh, so my last litter was red tails. Well, like common boas. Uh, I had a litter of sun glows and super sun glows and albinos. Um, this past year, it's been samboas. I've gotten into a lot of samboas. So I think I'm up to like 14 samboas. I know you're not supposed to count because then it seems bad, but I think it's like 14. Um, but then I've got like, I've got years of just picking up random stuff. I've got a couple of carpet pythons, a couple of rainbow boas. I got Louisiana pine snake, uh, some corn snakes, which I just got one this past weekend. Um, I have no ball pythons, so that makes me happy. <laughs> How dare there, were years, there were years there where people would just give me ball python, like normal, just they like, hey, will you take the snake? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take it. And finally, I decided I'm not taking any more snakes. <laughs> I, at one point, I think I had like four or five just big normal ball pythons. Yeah, but mostly samboas. I love a lot of samboa morphs. Uh, Anything first, in particular, morph wise? Well, when I first got into like snakes. 17 or so years ago, it was like annery and normal. And that was what you had in Samboas. And so like every pet shop you went to had an annery and normal. And now you've got albinos and you got paradox albinos. And so because you have anneries, you have snow versions of each of those. Um, they've got stripe into them. You've got paint, which is kind of like a thicker stripe down the back. Um, and then any combination of all that. And I kind of like the ones that have like three genes in them. You can get like two or three genes in them to see how they look. Uh, the paradox stuff, though, I think, is really neat because you can go from an animal with one spot to an animal with 20 spots, and they can be anywhere from you know a little spot or a big blotch on their back. And so that kind of stuff's kind of cool to me. Is is any of it more desirable than others? Say like a high blotch animal, low blotch animal. It depends on the person. I like the high blotch stuff, but like so when you mix stripe into the samboas, it takes those blotches and turns them into little tiny specks. And so you get a lot of speckling, and you don't get the big blotches. 
But on the normal strain of albino, the bell line albino, you can get these big blotches. And really, you can have an extremely blotchy animal give birth to a snake with one little dot. Um, it's just, it's so variable. But I think that's kind of the fun thing. You know, when a litter comes along, it's like Christmas. So you don't know what you're going to get. It's kind of like you with the corn snakes when you find, like most corn snakes now have like 70 morphs in one snake. And so you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're going to pop out random motleys, emails, anneries, all the, all the common stuff. Well, like this corn snake I bought this past weekend, I just needed an email. I need it for when I teach genetics because I teach high school biology. And so I was like, all right, I'll get an email. But then it's like het, blood red and caramel and like 50% het, three or four other things. So I was like, I don't know. It's an email corn snake. Yeah. And then you, if you breed it together as a representation of how genetics work and you're going to probably pop out snows, even if you do like an email to a normal because everything's het snow. And yeah. that may not be the best example. Well, it's like I have I have two other corn snakes that I've had since 2005. One's a snow and one they literally sold it to me as we think it's annery. But we have no idea what else it is. And so it's gray. But I've bred it to my snow before and got albinos and I've gotten snows. So I know two of the things in it. but They don't know what else was in it when they sold it to me. So it's just kind of like a mutt. Yeah. Send me over a picture. I'd like to see it. Yeah, he's cool. Like when we were looking at corn snakes back in 05, I took my wife to Daytona and she wanted to get her first snake. And she likes like the black snakes, black and white. And so I was like, all right, we'll get you an anery corn. And there are all these dark anery corns that look like every other anery you've seen. And then there was this one which was gray, but it wasn't charcoal because I've bred it to my snow and I've gotten babies that came out anery. So it wasn't charcoal. Um, it's just, it's weird looking. Yeah, I'm interested, Gosh. but uh, I got you off topic with the corn snakes. Oh, I know. Uh, Boa. <laughs> uh, so Sambo, have you bred them yet? Yeah. Um, I haven't done any of my morphs yet, but I've got uh, some normals and well, one's a big old normal. or So I thought I bred her this year. She's actually had anery. So I got some anneries. Um, and those things, I mean, they sell quick. I actually just picked up four more just normal or basically normal females so that I can keep up with having babies. And then I've got like, uh, let's see. Like you ever get snakes where you like, man, I never thought I'd have that. Oh, absolutely. And so I've done that a couple times and i used to be into red tails but the problem with red tails is one the price tag and two rats get expensive so meaning the uh the the morphs of of red tails they're pretty expensive or yeah like even so like my sun glows which are just hypo albinos go for 450 500 which doesn't seem like a lot but then you get into some of the higher morphs that are well over a thousand dollars two thousand three thousand and to someone that's a teacher that's expensive <laughs> Right. How does how does something I know people have been breeding sunglows for how for so long. How is that holding its value when you have litters of like 30 or so? So it's weird. You can get some that are good looking and some that are bad. And one of the problems that really happened early on with boas is that like the albinos and with any of the snakes, they breed it to anything just to get more of them. And so for a long time, you had some sunglows that weren't great looking. Or we're still expensive, but now people have gotten better at breeding it to better looking stuff. And they keep their color longer, they're brighter, the pattern's nice and cleaner. And so that kind of stuff will hold its value. You know, people will pay the extra for a good looking animal. Um, I mean, there's still people out there breeding them to, you know, the problem with albino genes is it can cover up a lot. 
mm-hmm. on a not great looking animal just because it gets rid of all that melanin. But uh, the sun glows are one of my favorites just because it brightens that red up so bright. I want you to get rid of all that melanin in the background. But then like this here is just one of those snakes that when I got her in, I was like, man, I can't believe I own this. This is a striped snow Samboa. So it's hard to see the stripe because she's solid white. Right. But, right. So it's a three gene animal. And like just having, it's cool. And it's to most people, it's a, it's a worm. You know, people make fun of me because I don't have worms. But to me, it's just, it's the real, I love genetics. So the fact that I can breed this to, well, I have a male for it, which is a striped albino pet annery. So I can get striped anneries and striped albinos and striped snows and then non-striped versions of all that. And then anything in between like that, that that's fun to me. Are the, are the pattern mutations like the paint and the paradox, are those recessive as well? Most of them are. Um, striping is different. So there's the Kenyan Sambo, which is the one that everybody's used to, which is this, mostly. And then there's one called uh, Rufescens, Rufescens, however they pronounce it. Uh, right now, it's kind of considered a subspecies of the Kenyan. And grown, they're kind of just a plain brown color, just a solid brown color. But when you breed them into Kenyans, which are what we normally know as Kenyans, you get striped babies. And it kind of works like an incomplete dominant, like you'll get striped and non-striped babies and the non-striped babies can never produce stripes you know it's not there but it's not always 50 50 it's not it doesn't work it's weird but you can kind of it's kind of a dominant trait yeah so it's oh does a product of hybridization and are people like frowning upon that no because as far as it's considered it's considered to be basically a subspecies of kenyan so we're everyone's okay with it there's some people that have kind of Try to say that it's its own species, um, but everybody's been okay with it. It's funny. I've talked to several people. You know, like the Sambo group doesn't really get kind of uptight about stuff. You know, like some of those Facebook groups, depending on the species, get really uptight about what people are breeding or how they take care of it. Like you can post one picture of your setup, and you're going to get like seven people yelling at you. Yep. But like Sambo groups, you post it, and you get, oh, that's awesome. Congrats. That looks great. You don't get a lot of that people yelling at you that you're doing something horribly wrong. I think you also have a little bit higher of a barrier to, uh, for entry, meaning that it's not a, a, a corn snake or ball python. It's not some of the the most mainstream, but it's a nice like stepping stone right after that. People yeah. like, get into them after their first snake. When it's weird, it's like I go to shows and you, know, you went to shows when you were younger, right? Yeah. So you, the stuff you saw then, there's some things you don't see now. Like I used to see Kenyans everywhere um i went to a show three weeks ago not a single sambo in the entire place which is just weird like i think they're gonna make a comeback but for a snake that stays fairly small and in a hobby that's so morph driven there's now morphs in there um you would think that more and more people will get them but it hadn't happened yet i'm hoping they do because i'm stocking up on them yeah, for sure. And that's something that uh, we have a good boa guy here that always vends the shows. And I wish I remembered his name, I would say it, but uh, a guy who who does all the Northeast shows and I'm always super impressed. But also you could see that he also goes into things like rosy boas or like rough scaled Sam boas or black Russians. Do you have any interest in, in stuff like that? So I'd love to have basically every type of Sam boa. I love the pattern on rough scales. I don't need any morphs in them. I think they look awesome. Um, I think 
those black Russians, when you get that solid black Sambo, it looks amazing. I love it. And there's I things like that. the, have you ever seen the, what's <laughs> cool. And everybody loves black snakes right now. So, I mean, but that's an awesome looking snake. Have you seen Arabian Samboas? I don't think so. So Arabian Samboas look like sock puppets. Their eyes sit like right up on top of their head, like googly eyes. And they're just the goofiest looking snake, which is one reason I like them. Um, and then you have the, uh, the Saharan Samboas, which normally if you see them in a show, they're wild cons. They're that weird Sambo that lays eggs. So like er- all the other Samboas give live birth and the Saharas are just in their own league. And they look like Kenyans, but they lay eggs. And is there uh, a certain amount of availability issues with those in particular? Are there people breeding them in captivity? There's people that breed them, but not. So it's weird. They look so much like Kenyans. If you're going to breed a Sambo, we might as well breed the Kenyan. Way easier. It's just easier. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people, the eggs I've heard will dry out really fast because they're weird. They're not a, they're not like a corn snake egg or a carpet python egg. They lay the egg and then they hatch in about 14 days. Hmm. So, so it's, it's like, like in between. Yeah, it's this thin membrane that can dry out really easy if you're not careful with it. And like, you know, I've seen like hog nose eggs. Sometimes they have that window through it. You can kind of see through them. That's how they kind of look. But uh, if you're going to go through all that trouble, breed Kenyans because they kind of, like I said, they look basically the same. So are you basically worrying about incubating the egg in the female? Like she's basically incubating the eggs in her for a certain amount of time until she lets them go and then they hatch in 14 days. Like, do you yeah, have to treat it like it? I haven't had them yet. I, I want to just because, like I said, I go to shows and the only ones I ever see are wild caught, which makes me weary of buying them because I know that they're all wild caught. And so it's an uphill I mean, battle that yeah, you don't necessarily need to take. Yeah. I don't want to get one, get home and realize, oh, man, this thing will only eat live. Can't get it to eat frozen, you know, or this thing has parasites and I got to worm it. And all these other issues that don't happen if you're ordering something that's captive bred from a good breeder. Yeah, I don't I don't think people give uh, the guys who establish projects like that enough credit. The, the no. stuff that they have to go through. I mean, just think about like, it's crazy when you think about like the 70s and stuff, the things they got in. Just think about, at some point, ball pythons were hard to breed. Like, that's crazy. You can breathe them now in a shoebox in your closet. And at some point, there was a guy going just just having ball pythons die all the time because he couldn't get them to reproduce, couldn't get them to eat, couldn't get them to breed. Even so, in like 2010, there was, you know, so many videos, podcasts, things coming out about how to breed ball pythons. Like it was uh, some algorithm that we were cracking. And now it's like you just throw them together whatever time of the year and eggs pop out. Exactly. It's so like with the Boland's pythons, you hear them talk about that whole project. I mean, I've got to give them credit. That's that's a lot of time and money invested in something you may or may not be able to get to happen. Right. And so and that's kind of where I'm right now. I want to build up what I've got with my Kenyans. But at some point, I'm going to start to spread out into some of those other things just because I think they're neat. And with Sambo is I can I can fit way more in my house than I can like red tails. You know, these are four foot cages and they take up a lot of space. Right. Yeah. And that's something that I think uh, we get out of hand in the beginning and then a lot of us scale back. So, I mean, like, you know, I, I only have one olive python, water python. I realize I don't need multiples of those. And like corn yeah. snakes, keeping a corn snake is just so much more enjoyable. I can have one of those things, one or two of them, but just having uh, something more manageable is, is always well, good. And you can... 
I don't, I don't want to belittle the animal because I love snakes, but like you can collect so many different colors in corn snakes. So you can have a rack full of corn snakes and not a single one look the same. And so to me, that's really cool. Like with my samboas, I love that I can open up six or seven drawers and never see the same thing in those drawers. You know, so I think that's, I, that's why I love the snakes part. It's just the colors you can get. But on the same side, I've got rainbow boas. And I don't want to see one more from the rainbow boas. I think my Brazilian rainbow boas and their natural color look amazing. Everything but that, uh, there's some type of pie that I saw that was just. They've been trying that for well over a decade. I remember the first seeing one of the first ones way back when I got into it. And people have tried to get it to reproduce, but they haven't been able to figure out if it's genetic or if it's just happening. Um I've seen a couple other ones, but they have never looked as good as that one. Like they called it a calico at one point, but yeah, that pied one that where it looks like someone spilled white paint and splattered all over it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's something that that is pretty much naturally as beautiful as it can get. That animal, um, so it's kind of hard to add things to it. But it's always fun to see people working with different morphs, even in stuff that's naturally beautiful. There's a they now have Brazilian rainbow boa albinos. For a long time, they had the Colombian rainbow boa albinos. And they were okay. Um, but I've seen Brazilian rainbow albinos, and they have a lot more color, a lot more oranges and yellows in their pattern. And so that's kind of cool. But to me, the, the red on a rainbow is the best part of them. Yeah. So are you planning on breeding those, or have you bred them in the past? I bred them when I was in college, which was like 07. Um, and then I moved, and then life happens, and they get older, and I kind of don't pay attention, and now they're both 17 years old. So... If they breed, they breed. If not, they don't. I'd like to get at least one baby before my male passes because he was kind of like my first snake that got me to where I am now. I've had him for 17 years since he was a baby. So you didn't do that thing uh, when you had your first clutch? You didn't keep uh, at least a pair from that first one? No. I was I was definitely early on in that same mode that everybody goes through. I got It's like Pokemon. Got to collect them all. Yeah. So I don't need a pin of something. I just need one or two of something. All right. Um, you know, at one point I had I had way too many snakes. I had you known to some of the bigger breeders doesn't sound a lot, but like sixty or seventy. But it wasn't sixty or seventy with an idea of a breeding project. It was I just need snakes. And so in the past year and a half, two years, I've really focused on sambos. And that's one thing it's done for me is like it's really re-energized me in the hobby. It's caused me to get better equipment. It's caused me to pay better attention to what I'm getting, get better quality. So I think when, when you have too many animals with different ways of keeping, it's just, it thins you out a little bit. It's work. It becomes yeah. work. And so it's, it's less fun. I think everybody needs to, I don't know if everybody needs to go through that whole hassle, but I think once they do, they realize, okay, I got to do something different. I think everybody needs to find that one thing that makes them want to walk into their snake room or want to go into the, just the, if it's on a whole room, go look at that cage every day and want to hold that animal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's wanting to know more about it's hard to learn too much about the animals when you have like 15 different species in your room. It's nice when you can see the individuals, even within the species, when you have 50 of one thing, you can see that it's not just this species species axis way. You're like, oh, this individual animal is a little bit different. This one's a little psycho since day one, blah, blah, blah. And this one's really chill and just they all have different personalities. Exactly. And so and one cool thing with Sambo is, is 
you'll see a lot on like say some of the groups someone will post their, their snakes not eating so we'll post that in a ball python group someone tears them apart and goes oh no you're doing something wrong you're checking temperatures all this you post it in a uh, sandball group the first question we ask is is it male because usually it's male and it wants to breed and so it's funny to watch to watch a snake that you know will eat non-stop all the time and all of a sudden it's done you're like all right it's time to put them with a female right and then so I mean, it's, it's those little things you start to notice when you have a whole group of them versus just like one or two. Right. Yeah. And that's something that can't be can't be undermined as far as uh, the individuals that you're working with. So if you if you work with 50 sand boas over three years, you may have just as much experience as someone with five sand boas for eight years or something like that. You know? Yeah. And. I definitely don't think everybody needs to get into breeding. I think everybody needs to find, like I said, the thing that makes them excited. Whatever it is, even if it's like green and knolls. If you're like, oh man, I've got a 55 gallon tank full of green and knolls, and that's it's amazing. That's cool. I think too many people tear people apart for what they have. But yeah, and then breed those in knolls and send them over to me because <laughs> you can always use those. But I, I think if more people were just excited about the little things, I think that would be fun. I mean. You know, we work with everything's attainable in corn snakes pretty much. And yeah. I feel like, you know, Sambo and Morph seem to be a little bit more expensive, but everything's probably attainable over, you know, there's no $25,000 morph or anything crazy. And most of it, if you're getting a single gene animal, they're affordable. They're in two or three dollars range. So they're affordable. It's the, the, four, the three or four gene animals that get expensive. But so, I mean, everything, and they stay small. I mean, a, a male Sambo can live in a 10-gallon tank. You know, a big female can live in a 20 gallon long tank. And so that's something you can put on a shelf in your house. that doesn't take up a whole wall. Mm -hmm. So do they have that like uh, ambushed mentality when they feed? Man, so they, they stay buried underneath. I use Aspen. So they stay under the Aspen. And when you go to feed, if you wave that mouse across the top of the Aspen, they shoot out and grab and pull it in. I mean, it's quick for this snake that looks so just fat and slow and when there's food involved they are super fast i mean you can just imagine them in the wild hidden underneath that sand and a little lizard or mouse runs by and they reach out and grab it um so yeah it's that feeding response is strong in them i mean the great thing is like reading the females i can feed my female the whole way through pregnancy you know a lot of female animals they won't snakes won't eat during pregnancy i can throw them a pinky or a fuzzy throughout pregnancy to keep weight on them uh, and keep them healthy the whole time is that is that an animal that needs uh, any type of crazy seasonal temperatures in order to breed any triggers? I don't. Um, they're, they're, they're really some people I know will house like two or three females and one male year round and they'll reproduce like clockwork um, without changing any temperatures, without doing any kind of uh, drops or anything. And they'll just reproduce. They're They're pretty easy to breed, especially the fact that. I mean, the mom holds the babies. I don't have to worry about eggs. So, <laughs> uh, are temperatures a big deal? They're warm. They like it warm. It's like a hot spot um, above ninety, close to ninety-five. So I kind of have to have sambo with specific racks, yeah. Um, because I've got like rosy boas, and they like it a little warm, but not that warm. Um, and I've got some other small boas and stuff that I just can't keep around ninety-five. So I've started buying racks just for sambo's, so I can heat the whole thing. Right. So yeah, ambient temperature is not a thing for my room. So uh, the 
95 degree hotspot. Is there any anything that you need to do humidity wise? I know that they like it low, but I don't. And I live in Louisiana, so I normally don't worry about humidity because I have it naturally. But um, if they have an issue shedding, you can just kind of soak them a little bit and help it come off. But usually, humidity is not a big issue with those guys. Um, and sometimes you have to look at their tail a little bit when they shed if you have humidity issues because they're weird. They're very smooth snakes until you get to that like bottom fourth of their body. It's extremely rough, um, used for like gripping in the sand when they're moving around. And so that area can get a little tricky with them shedding. But, you know, spray the bedding a little bit when it's shedding time and it'll slip right off. Sweet. Seems like a pretty straightforward animal, especially for someone looking to uh, yeah. produce some morphs and kind of have some fun projects going on. It's a super awesome snake. You know, people talk about the fact they hide all the time. They do. They're not going to be a snake. You're going to walk in and go, oh, I do most snakes though. So. Yeah. Yeah. If you give your snake a hide, there's a good chance you're not going to see it shy of something sitting on a branch. Right. Um, so they do hide and they don't like being picked up. They don't mind once they're up. It's the whole picking them up thing. They kind of spaz a little bit, but once you get them up, they calm down. And they're not going to hold on to you. So like your corn snakes will wrap around your wrist, your hand, your fingers. Yeah, these don't have that. They just kind of flop if you're not holding on to them. Yeah, they seem that way. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're not agile climbers. Right, yeah, it makes sense. So uh, we went over time, of course, which I mean, we thought we would. But we'll, we'll have to do a full podcast sometime. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And uh, other than that, where can people check you out and find you on social media? Uh, go on Facebook. Look up Simply Serpents. You can see uh, anything I have available. Only thing I have right now are uh, boa constrictors, but I'll gladly send you a boa constrictor. Are so you doing any more uh, Louisiana, Texas shows, anything like that? I am done right now for the year, mostly just because school's about to start back up. Um, I think I'm doing a Lake Charles Herp show in November, somewhere around there. Um, I just got back from a herp show. You had them on your show, Lori and uh, Sean. They're awesome people, and their shows are great. So anybody that's Texas, Louisiana, I would definitely go to a herp show of any sort. Absolutely. I approve, even though I haven't been to one. <laughs> You've got to come to their Conroe show. I haven't been to the Conroe show yet, but that's supposed to be like the biggest one in Texas, and that one is supposed to be good. Yeah, and we've just seen – I've just seen from afar him grow that show year after year. and yeah. It's impressive that it's, you know, it's pretty much just them. Yeah, it's, it's him and his wife. They, it's, they're the only ones they do it all, but they do it really well, and they do it like a family. You know, I've done some other shows where it's very much a business. This one to them is very much family. You know, you hang out with them after the shows. It's, it's great. Yeah, that's why I miss that scene down there where just yeah. everyone is. You were talking about how y'all can't set up the day before the show at y'all shows, which is, is weird. Like, even our... Our Repticons will let us set up the day before the show, which makes it so much easier. Yeah, but you guys are all laid back, set up before, hang out, hang out with each other, and yeah. It's it's a party. I look at it as vacations. When I do a, a show on a weekend, it's a vacation. <laughs> yeah, that's how it always that's how it always felt down there at all the Texas shows and whatnot. But that's as not what you have up there? No, no, not it's very straightforward, I feel more so. Mm. Just go to the show, get out. Maybe a little bit more like cutthroat. But, yeah, uh, I'm here. It's great. I'm looking forward to Tinley. I mean, I'm not bending, but I'm looking forward to being at Tinley. I've never done it before. Oh, yeah. Oh, it will be amazing. Last year was your first year, right? 
No, no. I went in like 2014 or so. I used to do that. We did Daytona. Uh, that was kind of our vacation every year from 05 to 09 before it kind of started to go downhill. Yeah, that's one of those that I need to check out too, just for just to say I did. Yeah, Daytona, Pomona, Tinley. I think those are the ones we're shooting for. I'd like to do Pomona at some point. I've never been out west for a reptile show. That'd be interesting. Yeah, we'll have to do it. Just like just like Tinley, we'll have to travel out there to California and yeah, get a hotel room and hang out. I'm interested in seeing what kind of reptiles they do out there. I know what we have over here, and I just imagine. There's got to be way more like king snakes and stuff out there just because they're so much easier to come across. I don't know. I don't know what the the legislations on That's king true. snake are weird. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to get into it. I just <laughs> I, haven't so, I haven't sold any to California, but so I don't really know how it works. But well, it's like why I'm with the pines right now. I'd like to get a female pine, but if I breed it, I'm stuck within the state. You're even in trickier. I mean, does Louisiana itself have any? Because I know Texas does, but does Louisiana have any regis- or, uh, legislation? To my understanding, as long as like you can prove that they weren't in the wild, which I can I can prove for the guy I got them from, um, that you can do it. But that's also an area where I don't want to go to a show here and have one on my table and then get in trouble for it. Yeah. And so as cool as they are as babies, I mean, you've seen them. They're enormous, which I think is the coolest thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a full snake. It's like... I mean, what the first time I saw one, I was like, this is ridiculous, especially if you hold, uh, hold it next to a horn snake. It's it's insane. I actually, before I, I w- uh, came on here, I stopped at Target to get tubs for them. And I was like, 32s? I ended up getting 15 quarts, but I, I almost got 32 quarts, which is like what I put an adult corn snake in. Yeah. Because I was like, awesome. these are big, man. But at the same time, that's why you can understand that they're, you know, basically endangered. They're having four eggs at a time with massive babies. So not the best survival plan. No, no, definitely not. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. PortCityPythons.com. Check out Simply Serpents on Facebook. And you're on Instagram too, right? I am on Instagram. Yeah, simply it's simply underscore serpents on Instagram. Yeah, so check him out wherever you can find him as well as uh, we'll catch you back tomorrow. James, thanks for hanging out. Yeah, thank you, man. What is up, people? Thanks for coming and hanging out today. We have Riley Jimison. So you've heard from Riley before. He's been on the podcast. And he actually, I believe it was today, just found Mad Hog Eggs. Yeah, it was this morning. Yeah, so when did you start uh, working with the Madagascar and Hognos? Um, the first time I ever got the opportunity to work with one was actually back in Santa Barbara while I was at the zoo there. So I worked with one individual there for the six years that I was there, and she was really awesome. Uh, but she was, like, fully melanistic, and I've yet to see one like her. Um, and then after leaving the zoo... Um, uh, well, actually before, no, I got them before I left the zoo, uh, down there and moved up North, but, um, I got, a, I got three individuals, uh, while the import window was still open before they closed that, um, which, you know, was pretty shortly afterwards. And, uh, so I've had my adult trio for about two, two and a half years, I, I think now. So, you know, that's about eight years start to current working with them. 
were you trying to breed them in previous seasons or were you still kind of getting everyone acclimated? Um, I was still getting them acclimated and, uh, the female that I know for sure is a female, um, she was much smaller than the two that were supposed males. Um, so I wasn't trying to breed them. I brought them in and quarantined them all together. Um, and, uh, that seemed to work pretty well because then I could treat them all together and I gave them some internal parasite treatments and a few things like that. Let them get, you know, adjusted and in a quiet space and kind of left them alone for a while. And then, uh, I separated them into their own, uh, bins so they could, you know, I could more concretely know who was eating because I would just give them the food and, and leave it because they wouldn't take it off the tongs for me except for oh, one damn. individual sometimes does. So sometimes I'd find uneaten food and I wouldn't know who, you know, wasn't eating or if somebody was gluttonous and took two or something like that. So, um, so I separated them and was just maintaining them individually for about a year and a half or so. And, uh, I did put a male in with a female for like two days, but, um, I didn't really see anything of it. And it was probably in like maybe February of this year, if not earlier. So, um, and it was just for like a week and then I pulled them out and they're pretty like mellow with one another. They're a rather communal species as it is. So it's not unusual for them to be cuddled up on top of each other, even males, um, just kind of hanging out. So they're not really combative or anything. So it's hard to say if like you've got a pair that's um, doing well together or if you've just got individuals that are just displaying a normal behavior. And, uh, and then, you know, I realized how jam packed I was in here and I was, I was thinking I needed to, uh, to probably move on from the project and I needed the space that they were in for some carpets to grow up into. <laughs> and so I put all three of them back together in a cage. It's right up at the top of this stack up here and uh, all the way up there. And I've just kind of been ignoring them. Like I'll clean them and feed them. I just leave food in there, change their water, do all that stuff. But they like really don't like to be bothered. Um, they get really upset when I enter their cage. Lots of hissing and, and um, periscoping and hooding and bluff striking and um, so I just try to leave them alone. And then I was checking them the other day. <laughs> I picked up the female that did the double takes off some major scale separation. And, uh, as she just slithered through my hands at the back end, it was unmistakable that she had eggs in her, uh, cause she is still kind of small for an adult. So, and then wake up to eggs this morning. <laughs> so how long were they communally together? Exactly. Uh, been... At the end there. Well, they, they're still together, and I'd say they've been together for maybe maybe four months, three or four months now. So um, they're late-season breeders from everything that I've read and everyone that I've talked to. Uh, they tend to breed in, like, June and July, so it would make sense that um, they were breeding, you know, during the last couple of months, perhaps. Is there anyone breeding them consistently? Um, I was talking to, I believe it was Tim Fleming and he knows of a guy who's bred them three times. Um, but that's the only person I've heard of uh, with any sort of consistency. Most of the time it's people kind of accidentally doing it or just one year they have success. 
Uh, I know Bronx, the Bronx Zoo did it like eight years ago. Um, a gal over in France got a clutch of eggs this year. Um, and, you know, maybe a handful of other people uh, over in Europe and maybe one or two other people in the States. I know, uh, like, I think Ken Foose in Vegas has had captive hatch babies, but they might have been captive born. From the import. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he got like a gravid import right. or not, but um, he may have, you know, also produced them. But yeah, I mean, they're not they're not produced with any frequency. Yeah, like kind of what we were talking about. That's like the the old school breeder method. Like we were yeah. like 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 someone at a pet shop gets a bunch of imports and they're all together for when they're ready to sell and then they breed and then they have eggs. And then you're like, oh, yeah, Fred Madagascar hog knows. <laughs> yeah whoops <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah it's pretty cool i mean it's a small clutch i know they can produce like you know a dozen or more eggs so i only got three good eggs and two slugs which you know given the size of the female it makes perfect sense so um but yeah i, I kind of just left them alone and put them together and let them do their thing and that was that well, it seems like there must be one of those species that just kind of does well with neglect in a sense and not being messed with. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing that I would say that I did other than just put them together is um, around, I want to say like around March or April, I switched out their substrate to a much more like damp and moisture retaining um a substrate to sort of mimic more of a wet season and uh, gave them some moss and was actually uh, offering them bigger water bowls and just overall making their environment more humid because um, they have, you know, an alternating dry and wet season over in Madagascar. And they, they sort of seemed to want it wet starting around February, March, because they were flooding their cages and, and going in and out of their water and just absolutely destroying everything. It was just sopping wet. And they wanted it that way. No matter what I did, they kept getting it soaking wet. So I figured, all right, must be time for the wet season for you guys. And so maybe that had something to do with it as well. Cool. And then for the eggs, uh, what's your game plan? Well, I've got them set at 82 right now. Um, I've talked to several people in the last 24 hours and looked at some of these old uh, digital archive resources that I found little snippets of here and there, because there really isn't a lot published on them. There's some stuff published on um, uh, some nest monitoring behavior, but nothing specific enough as to like, oh, this is how long the eggs went. They sort of had a guesstimate that they went 60 to 70 days, um, and they just sort of paid attention to what the ambient temperature was in that part of northwestern, yeah, northwestern Madagascar at the time. And uh, just sort of surmised, surmised that they cooked at, you know, whatever temperature the ambient was, which is probably accurate. Although if it's in like a sandy burrow or something, I'm sure there's like a little microclimate in there. So, um, but otherwise, yeah, most people have said that anything from 80 to 82 all the way up to 86. Um, and obviously the higher temperatures resulted in a faster incubation, lower temperatures, longer incubation. I'm of the mind that lower is probably safer. Um you know, given these are first time imported breeders and it's a really small clutch, I'm just going to take it slow and low and see what happens. Yeah. So it seems like a, a similar method to a lot of people would take with 
colubrid eggs in general? Yeah, yeah, they they are a a rear fang colubrid, and they're uh, well. It's funny because I've I've been noticing other people's photos of their eggs from you know whatever I found in archives. Some of theirs are more like oblong, but a little more symmetrical. These ones that I got are like three and a half inches long and about an inch wide. They're like you know like your thumb. They're a total uh, colubrid egg, and it's the first time I've experienced this. So. I'm a python and boa guy, so um, so it's pretty unusual for me. I, I really didn't know what to expect. Did she produce less than, uh, you would say, a, a large female who was breeding in captivity? Did she produce uh, less as far as yield of a number of eggs in the clutch? Yeah, so I'm assuming if she continues to put on size and mature over the next year or two each year she is given the opportunity to breed her clutch size would increase um i was you know looking around online and found photos of somebody who had an insanely huge clutch it looked like 18 eggs or something it was like as big as some of my carpet python clutches are so um i think you know there's a lot of evidence to support that the larger the mass size of the animal, you'll see a direct correlation of increased clutch size. Uh, and it seems to be the case with these as well. Yeah. And that's something that with the, with the egg shape, I mean, you see, especially in corn snakes, if you have a female that lays 25, she'll get like almost perfectly round little eggs. And then if you get a female who lays six, you know, they're going to be slightly oblong and uh, a little bit bigger. So that's why I was kind of curious. It's almost like That's they bizarre. to fill the oviduct, like no matter what, which doesn't make, hmm. I don't know. Interesting. Or maybe, yeah, maybe again, it's a size and mass related thing, like, you know, shorter uh, dorsal to ventral space and, uh, and less width creates, you know, o uh, ovaries that tend to fit and be smaller. But when an animal's larger and, and, and the mass is greater and, you know, it's all about survival and reproducing. They're going to produce more, you know, perfect size ones. So maybe that's something to it. That'd be interesting if somebody studied that. Right. Yeah. And that's something that, uh, I don't know, it's obviously just anecdotal, but it's fun to, to think about and observe those kinds of things in your animals. So. Yeah, definitely. Super cool. So with the, um, well, are you more pumped about the mad hogs now that you got eggs or are you still like, get out of my house? <laughs> well, right now they've, uh, they've seemed to have redeemed themselves. Um, <laughs> we'll see though. I mean, at the very least, I'm going to incubate these eggs make sure that they're good. And, um, I don't know. I don't know yet. I think uh, I think for now that they're going to stay for at least a little bit, see what happens with the eggs, and then make a decision then. Um, you know, I have room for a couple more babies, but otherwise I'm I'm pretty full up here. So like I've really got to think about if I want to maintain the same number of projects. You know, a lot of species. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you look forward to uh, getting the baby started? Like. What is, have you heard at all, how they are to start? Some people say they go straight to rodents. I've read that they tend to be lizard and frog eaters. So I've also heard from people that, um, you know, they, they do need like either geckos and frogs or scents, things like that. 
Um, so mixed reviews about a 50, 50 split of some people saying they're tough and need that. And some people saying they're just like any other snake and they're pretty easy. Just wait till they shed out and give them a little bit of time. So, um, I've also heard that they're pretty big and sassy babies and, uh, usually the animals with, uh, the most fire and spicy attitudes tend to eat pretty well. So we'll see. I mean, I've got the Reptilinx gecko frog and an old scent in the freezer. So I'm ready for that. I bought that a while ago in anticipation of my children's Python clutch. Um, oops. So <laughs> knocking stuff over. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's on hand. Should I need it? And we will see how that goes. Yeah. I think, um, at least with my hog nose with Westerns, it's like they're the only ones that when they're feisty, they'll actually like make themselves too mad to eat. Like <laughs> like if I piss them off first, they won't eat. But if I have little interaction and drop and leave, then they'll eat. Or if I hold it perfectly like for the female and don't make her freak out and head on and just she knows what to expect. She'll I don't know. Those animals are weird. I, don't, I just have weird animals. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I bet you these ones will probably be as difficult as they could be. I will expect them to be the biggest pain in the butt as possible. One, so if they aren't, it's great. And two, <laughs> if they are, at least I was prepared. So um, they are coming from, you know, long-term captive wild-caught imports. Uh, two of them I got in, like, pretty fresh one of them I got in after he had been in the States for probably two, three months. So, um, yeah, fresh from Madagascar. So we'll see. I mean, usually the first generation of babies from imported animals tend to be little firecrackers, like real wild. I, I've never really seen like a, a young mad hog imported. Did you start any of them very young or did you get any, any, any that were very young? The uh, the adult male I got in already a pretty good size. He's gained some weight with me, but he was already pretty mature. Um, the third one that was sold to me as a male that I'm unsure of that will be probed eventually to confirm um, also got a little bit smaller than it is currently, but pretty mature. But the female was the youngest one I've ever worked with, and she probably came in as, you know, two years old maybe. Um so not very big, but definitely not a baby. But they are pretty big babies from what I hear, like pretty fat. Like, you know, it's like because they're pinky and probably, you know, 10, 12 inches long. So, But it seems like the, the imports are pretty readily on rodents when they arrive. Like uh, all the animals you got were pretty much on rodents. Yeah, I've never had an issue with them um, eating rodents. Um I've also given them uh, quail chicks, and they eat those just fine. Um, I was going to give them eggs, but they're just filthy already, and I figured it's just like I'm going to regret that. Um, but, yeah, no, they've all eaten frozen thawed for me, no problem. Sweet. So uh, we did it, man, 15 minutes. <laughs> Woohoo! That goes fast, huh? It's easier than two hours. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean – you know how us reptile people are, though. We can go for days. Yeah, once we get the ear of someone who's interested in the same thing we are, that's it, yeah. man. Yeah, it's game over. We just go down a rabbit hole without even realizing it. 
Right. So <laughs> what is uh, your social media stuff like that so people can look you up? Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram under Riley's Reptiles. Um, pretty easy to find. Uh, yeah. Oh, YouTube as well, I suppose. Yeah. Please subscribe to him on YouTube. <laughs> he needs features, damn it. Yeah. I, such I, a pain in the ass. I've, I've found out that uh, unless you have like a thousand subscribers, they really limit what you can do. So, um, yeah. But uh, no carpets and coffee tomorrow. I've got I've got work tomorrow. But should have should have done it today, man. You can do it right after. I was going to, and then I found the Madagascar giant hognose, and I was just like, <laughs> well, there goes my morning, because I spent like an hour taking photos and documenting and you know messaging people and losing my mind, and it was just, by the time I realized the coffee was getting cold, it was like 9.30, <laughs> it's like, damn, all right, well, too late. Yeah, I love so, how a lot of times you were like, well, within the last 24 hours, I found out this, so it's like you had to just cram yourself with all the knowledge overnight. Yeah. I mean, like I had done research prior, but it had been so long since I looked at any of it. Cause I was just kind of like moving on from it and just kind of leaving them alone. And uh, to be honest, I forgot about them for a week and didn't clean them. And I just like, was like, Oh crap, it stinks up there. Um, so yeah, like I just leave them alone and they seem to prefer it. But, uh, yeah, so I had to refresh my memory on all that stuff. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Congratulations. And I look forward to, seeing those babies come out thanks man i hope uh i hope the eggs go the distance and and i can share that you know that'd be cool yeah for sure and then we'll have to do this again uh for us it is portcitypythons.com portcitypythons instagram facebook all that good stuff please check out riley on youtube instagram facebook all that good stuff as well thanks for being here man thanks for having me on Today we have on Jake, you may know him from the Herpeticulture podcast, hard word, as well as JLB Morelia, as well as people may call him the Big Papaya or Mr. Papaya Head. This, <laughs> the Big Papaya, how come I haven't heard <laughs> I made them up, but they're now a thing. Jacob Brotz, oh, you just made welcome it. to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is called ground bites, I guess. I don't know, but 15 minutes, we are going to talk about popwin carpet pythons. So, uh, what you got going on this season on the popwin front? Oh man. Uh, I'm going to have a couple pairs going, nothing crazy. Um, I'm planning, I'm planning a farmed male to a really dark female, hoping to produce some darker animals from her. Um, that's something I you know, really look for. And then here in a couple weeks, I'll be getting some wild caught males and those, uh, one or two of them will be thrown into my breeding rotation. And then I'll be doing a pairing with a big female with one of those. And then I'll be acquiring another adult female here, here shortly. And then she'll be thrown in as well. Um, that one I'm leaving a little more quiet cause I don't have her yet. Exactly. So um but those are my those are pretty much what i have in store for this season um i'm going for some high oranges and dark animals really some uh, selective pairings so 
Sweet. So what's the, the theory behind the fact that you guys like outbreed so much and get so much, uh, so many imported animals and wild costs and stuff like that? Well, what do you mean the theory behind it? Like, like why do so many IJ guys in particular, you know, switch? Like look for that, look for that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's for me, it's, it's all about having new blood that's coming into, into, our collections, you know, because in my opinion, you can only inbreed so much. And personally, I'm doing, I'm going to be doing all I can to not inbreed. So my, my plan is to get as much farmed and wild caught stuff that I can. So I can have a variety of stuff of different colors, patterns, you know, all types of, you know, polygenic traits. And then, um, and then selective breed from there and just continue to outcross, you know, and keep things as, you know, not, inbred as possible you know um so i know a lot of the granite stuff so people try to you know outcross granite because there's negative mm. effects from like inbreeding does that happen to your normal ijs if they're bred captive generations back to each other i haven't personally seen it with just normals um <clears throat> i'm sure after a certain amount of time yeah um, but with the granites, like they were just really, really inbred. And I don't personally, I don't think there's that many people that have selectively bred, you know, just a wild type normal for so long because, you know, we live in, you know, a generation of morphs, you know, everybody loves morphs. So I feel like not, there aren't nearly as many people working with just the wild type stuff for, there are some, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of guys doing it um, or there's some guys doing it, but it's just not as commonly done i suppose so i just think it hasn't hit that um and that's just something i want to prevent because yeah that's i like wild type stuff i don't really i'm not super into the morphs of you know snakes so just having you know that variety of non-related animals is you know what's important to me and it looks like so you we, so are... we don't get to that point yeah yeah for sure so it looks like you are still building as far as the uh, collection goes what would oh, be like yeah, sure. your ideal size? Ideal size, um, man. I'm hoping to have you know. At the end of the day, I would, I would like to have you know twenty to thirty you know breeding animals you know that I can rotate in and out, and then just continue farm you know, having farm stuff come in, and you know always grow. You know, <laughs> you know it'll be a lot of moving things around, but. You know, just to continue, continue selective breeding and, you know, show people what these things can really look like with a little, a little dedication. And are you going for just the reds and oranges or do, are you going to have different pairs of like things that are black oh, and yellow, man. you know, all the different. Yeah, 100%. I'm going for, I basically want to be able to tell people if you can imagine it, I have that in a poplin carpet because like there's. There's so much variety and that's what I love about them, about just the wild types. You know, you can have animals that, you know, express a lot of purple uh, coloration. You can have some that are extra dark. You know, that's one thing I like a lot is, you know, heavy, heavy, dark and heavy black animals. Um, and then you've got stuff that are just super, super bright orange, you know, all the way down to like a nice mahogany brown, you know, and, and the patterns you can get with them are just out of this world, you know, with some of the stripes and, you know, just different all types of different things you can do with them. And I just want to have everything under the sun, you know, it's, you know, for colors. And, you know, I have animals that are more like golden, 
color with, you know, a, a black tone. Then I have some that are just like a burnt orange with heavy blacks. And it's just, it's, there's so much variety in them. That's what I think is amazing about the, the subspecies. And how do you, do you keep them much like people keep other carpet pythons? Oh yeah. I keep them pretty much the exact same way. Um, now breeding them can be, could be done a little differently compared to other carpet pythons being that they're from the, from Indonesia. Um, but as far as regular keeping, yeah, normal hotspot of 86 to 88, you know, normal ambience and all that. Did you have to do any temperature cycling stuff like that when you bred them this year? Yeah, I did uh, temp cycle a little bit. It wasn't very drastic. Um, some of the people, you know, some subspecies of carpets you have to drop pretty drastically. I didn't go as low and I really just kept my ambience the same and, you know, as I would normally and I turned their hotspot off at night, you know, and that was how I cycled instead of dropping my whole room down to 70 degrees and all that, like a lot of people do. Um, so. And do they actually breed during that, that cycle, like winter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they went during that cycle. Um, I may be changing it up instead of a temperature cycling. I may personally start doing um, a food cycling um, route with it instead um, because of where they're from. But the temperature cycling obviously worked. It worked for me. You know, I produced, you know, I had a clutch this year. Um, so, you know, both ways can go, but I do think, you know, because the, and the reasoning behind it is, you know, when you cool down animals, they're more prone, prone to wet respiratory infections. And so, you know, to prevent things like that, you do more of a food cycling and, you know, being in some species, you have to cool, obviously, but being that these are from Indonesia and the temperatures aren't as drastic compared to Australia, um, you can do more of a food cycling with these, at least, you know, I'm going to play around with it. Um, that's that my plan. I'm not saying it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's gonna, that's going to be my, that's my thought process behind it. I'm basically going to go at it like a green tree python guy, you know, just kind of put them together and hope for the best, you know. Now, uh, um, what would be the, the food, the, the food cycle? So what the would that mean cycle, exactly? The food cycling would be, so you feed them normally throughout, you know, your summer season. And then um, when you would normally like cool down, you cut off food. And then that would be their dry, you know, their wet or their, their dry season, whatever, something. I don't know. I can't think straight. <laughs> um, so you cut off food, you know, when you would normally cool, but you leave the hot spots the same. And then so after a month or two months-ish, two and a half months normally, again, just do it how you would cool. And then um, introduce food, small items more frequently. And then, the th and then that would be when you start introducing the animals because in theory – that triggers something in the snake's head saying, okay, food's back. I'm healthy again. Time to start breeding. You know, I'm good to reproduce now type of deal. So, but it's not something that you can flip back and forth between you can't cool one year and then do it the other way the next year. If you're going to commit to one way, you have to continue to do that or you're just going to fail every time. You know? So now's your opportunity um, to start. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how were you pairing together your animals uh, last season when you were successful or this season? However you this, yeah, this one, um, again, I just kind of left my room uh, temperatures the same, about 77 degrees-ish. You know, that's about what I try to keep the ambience at. And then at night, I just turned off their heat for about eight hours. And then they got their heat back on for the rest of the, the day. And that was my process. And one, I had... 
I had two pairs doing that same thing, you know, in the same system. One pair went and one didn't. So um, the female that didn't go was also a year younger than the female that did. So I think that may have had something to do with it. It was a younger girl. Um, but yet, you know, and that right there, in my opinion, goes to show because the girl that didn't, she's younger, but she's bigger. Hmm. The girl that bred is a smaller animal, but she's older. How old? So uh, the girl that bred was a 2014 animal. And then the girl that didn't was a 2015 Right. So if you started over again, would you slow grow them and just wait the, you know, a solid four to five? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And I always I'm a full supporter of, you know, slow growing an animal. Um, I by no means power fed this female, the female that didn't go. Um, I grew her. You know, she isn't she's grown a bit since I got her, but she was already, you know, a sub adult when I picked her up. Um but, Once they're on that know, trajectory, they're like on it, you know, even if yeah, yeah. someone just feeds a little bit more than you, you can't like turn back time. That would just be a big carpet. Exactly. So I just kind of got her on my regimen and, you know, kept her going. And I personally just thought she was of size and age, you know, and so I gave it a shot and she didn't go. And that's not a problem. You know, it didn't, bo didn't bother me. Um, so this year she'll be, this year will hopefully be the year she can go. Um, being that, being that I temperature cycled her last year, I'm probably going to do that again this year with her. And then with the other pairs, I'm probably going to try the food cycling method. Um, but if I go that route, that also pushes back those animals a couple months. Because if I'm doing a cooling, I'm going to be pairing up during my cooling season. If I'm doing a, um, a food cycling, I kind of have to you know, flip flop it. But, you know. So still trying to decide and figure it all out, but you know, a lot of things I'm, I'm always trying to think of stuff that I can do differently and just try and, you know, move a forward progression on things and try new stuff to, you know, within limits, of course, you know, but try new things to, you know, progress the hobby as a whole. Right on. And how many so, eggs did you end up getting for that girl that went? I got nine eggs. One of them went bad during incubation and then the other eight hatched. So I got eight live healthy babies. And uh, how many of those are you keeping back? How many do you think you're going to let go or have you already? Uh, I've actually already got names for all the babies I'm letting go. Um, as much as I wanted to keep the entire clutch, I do need some things coming up for the next season. So, you know, it was a good way to kind of put back into um, – everything i've done um and fund a few other things but i'm ended up keeping uh one male and two females and i ended up parting with the rest and i am doing some a little bit of trading to get some new blood in um because again that's just as important to me as you know selling something so i'm doing a few trades with some friends and so that's also going towards that but well ryan said you just needed money for pituophis <laughs> no those are that's just my that's a little side project man that money <laughs> the money i get from babies is definitely going towards stuff for next breeding season so yeah well i don't want to get yeah. too sidetracked but i may talk pitch you over this later but um <laughs> getting started how how hard or easy were the babies to get started easy it was cake man they all ate the first go round the very first go round, um, I offered them all fuzzies and 
I want to say five of them ate off, ate right off the tongs, and three of them ate off the floor. So frozen thawed right off the bat. Frozen thawed right off the bat. No scenting, no nothing. All I did, the only thing I did was um, I didn't just stick them in there wet. I dried off the fuzzy, and I actually ripped the skin off the nose to get a little bit more scent out. And when you dry off a fuzzy or any rodent for that matter, it's more, they can smell it more. And so just to make it more appeasing, I guess, for their first meal, I just did the little rip, dried it off real good, and, you know, it worked like a charm. So oh, Damn, I may try that. Yeah, no, it was easy, man. I'm all about, you know, that's my, always my first tactic that snake doesn't eat is I either rip the skin or split the head of the, the um, rodent. So, but yeah, it worked great for those babies. They all went very first time around, and they've never skipped a meal ever since. Oh yeah, that's easy. Yeah. Man. Uh, I skipped a step. Incubation, incubating eggs. Incubating. Um, I actually ended up bumming Justin's incubator because he had one set up, and I ended up there. Ended up being space, so I ended up using his, and um, that was set at I want to say eighty, eighty six point five. I want to say my box, being where it was placed, was reading about eighty seven. Um, and they incubated for, oh man, I'd have to look. It was longer than normal. I want to say it was like 64 days, um, because it was, I, it was either 86 or 87 that we incubated at and that they, they hatched at about 64 days. So nice. So yeah, uh, this I, is, go ahead. As I say, I'm just more of an advocate of going on the lower side of temperatures as far as incubating goes, because, you know, I feel like that the, the faster you try and push them out, the smaller they're going to be. And my babies were big when they came out. I've bought snakes that were, you know, a couple weeks old that were smaller than my babies when they came out of the egg. So, and that, that's what I like, <laughs> you know, I, I like big babies. So I go for the longer incubation period. Dude, the, the first time I, I bred corn snakes, I looked up because I knew that they were going to hatch out faster if I made them warmer. So I was like, <laughs> what, is, what is the warmest I could possibly do it in order to oh get them that like an idiot, man? These babies yeah. were so small and kind of a little bit of a pain uh, in the ass, but they ended, up, they ended up doing all right, but don't do that. So stupid. Yeah, no, I definitely go for the longer side of incubation for sure. And I also plan on doing maternal incubation this year. So that's definitely in the going to be in the makings. Is that just to say you did it or? Oh, no, I, I, per- from here on I out? think it's. I think it's a better, personally, I think it's a better way to incubate. Um, you know, it's not, it's been proven multiple times that babies come out fantastic when they're maternally incubated. And, you know, I'm of the opinion mama knows best. So, you know, if she's, if she wants to cook them, I, I'm personally going to let them, you know, as much as I can throughout my breeding career. So, and you just have the incubator ready in case she rolls one yeah. or does anything crazy. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because there are such thing as moms that just bail on their eggs. They're like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do this. And then so you got to pull them out. So I'll always have an incubator on hand. But, you know, I'll maternally incubate as much as possible. Right on, man. And if anyone wants to check out some uh, some of the stuff that's going on over there, where can they check you out on social media? You guys can find me on Instagram and Facebook at JLB Moralia. Um, if you want to add me personally, you can also do that. Um, you can check out the podcast too, the Herpeticulture Podcast. 
Uh, since Joe couldn't pronounce it earlier. Big word. Um, big word. It's a big word. It's okay, Joe. Um, you can also check that out. I do that with my buddy Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. Um, yeah, that's about it. Sweet. As for us, PortCityPythons.com, Port City Pythons everywhere else. Jake, thank you for coming and hanging out with us, and we will catch you all later. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Hanging out today with, you may know him as the Hobbit, the Salsa Slinger. He's a rapper. Ivory Mon King. Of I sell the, chicken eggs. He I sell does. Hot sauce. I fucking, dude, I, I, I got too much going on over here, man. <laughs> so, Ryan Sullivan of the Ivory Connection, how is your breeding season going? Or, well, for you, it's probably over. It's kind of. You know, I almost never have stuff hatching this late, but I got short tails hatching next week. Maybe some ocelots even, which is fucking cool. Something all brand new for us here, man. And then uh, I still got a retake clutch hatching the first week of September. So, like we were kind of talking about in our little pre-interview thing, just when you think you figure out, like, oh, this is my season, and it happens between here. You never know, dude. Some of these girls are going to hold out. And they're going to do their own damn thing, or they're going to go off food in August. I got stuff breeding right fucking now, and it's, like, way early, man. You just got to watch those animals and let them tell you what the deal is, for sure. Yeah, you still doing those uh, hybrid short t- <laughs> whatever the hell have, you're doing <laughs> i do have a crazy little hybrid thing going this year man i, I acquired a male of ball last year that's like dude i'm a butcher i'm not even gonna attempt to say whatever kind of super duper king dwarf pen fire butt fuck fucking but there's like a, a seven gene male ball python that i acquired last year that will fuck a water dish <laughs> and we've been going to some uh, various blood pythons this year. Hopefully one will take like last year and we'll have some different uh, genetics floating around and that stuff. Because As much as a few people really hated it, whatever, fucking most people really loved that stuff, man. I've had so much attention the last year that I wouldn't even thought about just nonstop. Hey, man, you got updates of those hybrids? Oh, man, how are those hybrids do it all fucking day in my PM box, man? It's it's. It's crazy how much, like, just nobody's ever seen stuff like that. You know what I mean? Not it was just the hybrid thing, but then there was, like, genetics stacked on top of it, too. So, really cool project to be. What, uh, what motivated you more, the people that hated it or the people that really liked it? It's always my haters that motivate <laughs> me the most, dude. Like, fucking let me know. Like, from day one, man, like, when I very first started, I decided, like, I'm going to get into this retic stuff. I'm going to get into this genetic stuff, these firm genes and stuff. I was like, what is everybody vocal that they don't like? And when I really like got out there, I was like, man, people didn't like this titanium stuff. And people didn't like ivory stuff at the time because they just thought it was going to make more white snakes. People didn't like all this shit. And that's all the stuff I focused on because I was like, man, I'm going to just like go out and prove these people wrong. But like this stuff is fucking good looking. This stuff does have fucking potential, man. That's always like the hate and the people that stack up against me are always going to motivate me more than my support, honestly, man. I'll cut my own leg off fucking prove a hater wrong dude fuck <laughs> so how do you go about i mean something like the ivory stuff and then you name yourself after it and then you decide that that's something that you're going to focus on like how did you make that happen how did you force that into existence man it was all almost like i say it's kind of fluky but like i always like that white snake stuff always like from the beginning 
I really liked when you go to a show and you go to a vendor's booth and like you don't maybe even see his fucking label up or you don't even see who's behind the booth yet, but you just look at that display and you're like, man, I can tell this is so-and-so's booth because this is the stuff that he works with, man. And I wanted to be really refined like that. I wanted to be known for certain things. I didn't want to just have every genetic or just be trying to make the next new thing or just be making pies and cows and all that stupid popular shit. I wanted to make stuff that was mine. And that's really where that started, because everyone I talked to would tell me, especially in retics, like Ivory's dead in Ivory's dead in. And I just I was like, you know, it's a crapshoot. I don't know. Maybe it is dead in. Maybe it's not. At the end of the day, it's going to be a five hundred dollar snake for fucking ever. I think they're very attractive. They sell fucking amazingly at fucking shows and online. Fucking people started getting to where they weren't producing them hardly anymore. So I just figured, man, if I'm just producing Ivory Berms and ultra ivory and ivory retics and i've got a fucking ivory blood on my table i got all this table full of white snake that's gonna blow people's fucking socks off man i you don't see anything like that and i've still to this day i've never seen anybody else show up with like four different species of animal on their table all in like one morph across the fucking board you know i've done it a couple times now man and it, it felt nice to after like eight years of work to be like I've got ivory bloods, i got ivory berms, i got ivory retics, i got all this shit on my table at the same time. It finally lined up all right. But that was always the goal. I wanted a table full of white snakes. Cause I just thought that would draw so much attention at a show, and, and it would stand out. Like, that's that's me. That's my shit. You know? And it seems like it's mostly catered to, and it seems like you always cater to shows more so than you do, like, high-end stuff online or is a little bit mixture. Man, when I first started, it's so funny, man. When I first started, shows were hard up, dude. Fucking, if I just didn't have just like that bread and butter right animal that was in that 250 range, I just didn't make fucking sales. And I used to kill the internet, dude. Fucking, something has really shifted in the last three years or so. There's so many flippers. There's so many people just buy, sell, trade, buy, sell, trade, buy, sell, trade the same animals in like two, three weeks, man. It's collapsed the internet market to just a gutter, man. And there's so many people these days that, like, they'll see an advertisement of some Joe Blow who's getting rid of a snake he outgrew for six months or whatever the hell. And, yeah, he's dropping it for, like, half the fucking price of fucking market value or whatever the hell on Craigslist. That somehow has now become that's the new market value because, you know, Johnny in his mom's basement said that's what that fucking snake was worth. That's now the market. Like, that's not really how it works to me at all. So it's made me get away from the fucking online sales a lot. Plus, Facebook shutting down my business page and fucking pulling all my goddamn ads every time I turn around. And people reporting my shit every time I turn around. All my fucking haters report every post I fucking post is nudity. I almost don't have a post anymore that I post that doesn't get flagged that I have to have, like, Facebook goes through and they say, oh, there really aren't dicks in this. I guess you can have it. Fucking like, like <laughs> almost everything I post. So I had to start finding somewhere other than Facebook to just sell my animals anymore. And then thankfully, there are more shows than fucking ever. Herps events have taken the fuck off. I've been able to get into these Reptile Nation shows that are like way the fuck out in this whole brand new fucking market of the world for me. Uh, I kill it at NARBC every fucking time. It's always a fucking solid event. Like, Lone Star has gotten bigger and better than ever, honestly. Fucking, it's like six times a year. I don't murder it at everyone, but three or four of those are really good fucking events for me at least every year. It, it just seems like it, I, I do better focusing my attention there, man. And then I could really create my own market, too. 
I, my show market is my prices. People come in all the time. They'll tell me I'm high or they'll tell me I'm low. And I said, look, this is my fucking marketplace that I created. You won't even find these genetics of animals really out there. Nobody else is making mop platy shit hardly. Nobody else is making ivory combos hardly. Nobody else is pumping these titanium fucking things I'm pumping out. Except for like a close niche circle of people that work with me. Fucking you got Chris at Snake in the Grass is making some of that stuff now with my genetics. You know what I mean? And Tyler, Tyler Fugit, Reptiles, great animals too. But those are those are kind of like. That's me passing the torch to the next generation as I'm starting to make new stuff now. So, but yeah, yeah, I guess that was that was something I wanted to ask you to yeah. where the the obvious the obvious logical person would be like, oh shit, like you are selling to your direct competitors, you are teaching them how to do it, and you oh, are making like your competition in a sense. It's not the wisest business plan I ever fucking had. I mean, I'm gonna say every. But I mean, I- that, that's how the snake stuff works as a whole, though. It, a lot of people they run that way. No, I'm not trying to cut you off, but you're you're on the fucking point, man. If you don't create a marketplace where people see these animals as an actual investment, then they're not fucking worth anything. You got guys like Jay Brewer out there talking about like, I want to be the only retic guy. I want to be the guy that everybody comes to for their retics. There's no fucking way to create a high end marketplace then. Then they're all pet quality animals and they're all three, four hundred dollar fucking snakes at that point. The only way someone's gonna drop three K, four K, ten K on a fucking crazy ass snake is if they think they can really turn that back around into something. And you can. Most people never will, but if fucking I, I've got some people that have gotten close to me now and yeah, fucking, you know, when I got into it, Tom Regan held my hand and fucking Goddamn, several of these guys held my hand and walked me through this fucking shit. And I, I feel like obligated to my good quality customers that really support me. I give them all that that same that same stuff back, man. Uh, it's no secret how I got to where I am or, or how I've been successful. Fucking, it's I blasted every day online. I tell everybody fucking what I'm doing over here, man. Uh, if you don't create that though like i say then your marketplace just falls out from underneath itself people got to see those high-end animals are not just throwing money down the drain itself because it's got a name or a fucking somebody's fucking company behind it, it it's an actual investment in that for sure why do you why do you think those like 90 percent don't make it all the way man there's a lot of reasons dude there's a lot of fucking reasons but uh patience is a big one Dude, if you buy a baby female retic, A, everyone's going to tell you that's trying to sell you on the fucking dream. Three years, she'll breed. Oh, three years, she'll breed. Bullshit. Okay, fuck off, fucking. I don't have shit in this fucking house breeding at three years. Granted, I'm not stuffing them full of fucking turkeys every day of the week like some of these guys trying to make them monsters overnight. But like four and a half, five. I had a golden child. Didn't go till she was almost seven. It's a long fucking game before you get to where you're at if you're investing that way. Uh, I mean, you can buy adult females and jump in. I, right off the bat, when I bought all my really high-end genetics right off the bat, I saved some money back, and I bought three big fucking girls that first year I wanted to kind of get a jump start on things just because I figured it gave me something to learn with, something to, like, they were already rolling. They had already had successful seasons. These were all proven girls. It would give me just something under my belt to get rolling. And they didn't all three just breed the first fucking year even, you know? Like, you got to learn these animals. It, it's it's no different than any skill. It's going to take hours. It's going to take trade time. It's going to take spending 
time with those animals. And I see a lot of people, they just, they go out and they buy the adults or they go out and they buy the stuff and they have everything right, but it just don't line up that first season because it's just, they don't know the signs. They haven't seen it. Some of that stuff just needs to sit in the same area for a while before it's going to cycle and do right. And, and because it's not a 90 day turnaround or a one year turnaround or an eight month, you know, 18 month turnaround, it's really easy to go all right, maybe on to the next thing, or, oh, I, I shit out this one year, you know, people don't see the shit inside of things, like, I put 400 fucking slugs in a, ink, in a fucking trash can one year, because my room got a little fucking hot, like, I've had total losses all kinds of fucking times on stuff, due to things that I couldn't even fucking control, you know what I'm saying, and, uh, it, it, there's a huge learning curve there, the first year I thought I was going to breed and just take over the world and be the bird king of the South or whatever the fuck, I had like eight good fucking eggs and only three of those fucking did shit. And I was so fucking bummed at life, man. Uh, most people don't have what it takes to then go, all right, what can I learn from this and move forward? Most people will just like find another dream real quick. <laughs> yeah. And, and unfortunately, it continues to punch you in the face every once in a while. I get kicked in the dick every season, sir. Like, there's always at least one like, oh, everything's going great. Oh, this bitch got egg bound and died for no fucking reason. And I've had her for like 10 years. And now my life is just crushed. Like, everything's going great. And then all oh, the badass one mega world first clutch I was waiting on is all fucking slugs this year. Fuck. Like, everything's going great. Oh, the GC, I've been waiting eight years to fucking breed, just fucking laid one viable egg in a mound of slug. It's never going to be perfect, dude. It's never going to be. If it is, fuck, dude, buy a lottery ticket or something, because, like, this is not an exact science. I say that shit all the time. This is, like, we're all learning every day, and it's all subject to fucking change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like I hashed out something. I was like, this is one of the nicest Amel buff stripes. I don't know if there's any other ones that exist, but I was like, this is the nicest one I've ever seen. Sure. I'm putting it through my hand, and there's a kink right by the tail, oh, and I'm like, son of a bitch, <laughs> you fuck. Like, why the only it. one? Yep, I know all about it. I had five uh, Mochino Super Tigers hatch out of my first clutch this season. I've never had this ever with anything, and I'm gonna talk about this fucking. Hopefully, somebody will tell me the same thing happened to them with the same combo. And, People will stop fucking making this combo, maybe. But that combo, for some reason, these animals just did not want to eat. They did not want to fucking thrive. All of the Mochino Super Tigers that I made after I've been waiting like, fuck, six, seven, eight years trying. Oh, no. What happened? So if you guys didn't know, we did the podcast this morning. Well, it was just me. And uh, we had Gavin from Balls to You, and it was really awesome to have him on talk about ball pythons. And uh, it's not very often that we have ball python people on the podcast. And it's not like it's exactly by design, but there are just, I don't know, I just feel like it's something that's covered by everyone else. So we just do it every once in a while. And when we do it, we like to do it big. And uh, it was great having Gavin on and talking all about ball pythons. And talking about like the market and stuff that I haven't talked about in forever. And there's so much. Uh, and no, James, there isn't a podcast on Tuesday because this Sunday's counts. But I have had guests on here every single every single day, which is kind of crazy. I didn't think I'd be able to put that together. Thanks to people like James Lewis, who's in the chat. Today, I actually 
split up the pairing of the Louisiana pine snakes. So like I said, I would, earlier this morning, I was separating a bunch of babies and yeah, it was time for the, the pine snakes to separate and I sexed them and they shed. They had their first shed just a few days ago and put them in their enclosure, which I'm using a shoebox tub at the moment. And man, these snakes are huge. <laughs> it's so crazy. I'm probably going to uh, give them hopper mice. So it's pretty similar to maybe the size of a ball python, a little bit, a bit bigger than a ball python. Actually, I take that back. But man, is it crazy uh, hatching out snakes like that. But I did sex them and I have one male and one female. So I'm really, really glad that I got a pair. And I will probably just hold back of that or hold them both back. And Ryan is messaging me right now. So I'm going to probably hold them both back just because, of course, I need a spare. Well, that's not true. I already have two male Louisiana pines. But but the the one's so old. And then the other one, you know, you want insurance animals. So I need, uh, I need them. Or I just want to keep them back either way. I'm good. Um, James Lewis said, handle them a ton. And he's referring to the fact that his Louisiana pine snakes are seemingly completely normal, just normal every day, like a bull snake. You, once you get them out, they're good. Nope, not mine. I never really, well, I've held them a bunch of times and I've only gotten bitten a handful of times, but, but they're generally runners and muskers and it's just not really any use to, uh, to take them out because it only freaks them out. And as babies, I actually handled them a bunch and they never really settled down exactly. That female was good for a short period of time and then went kind of devilish at the end of the day. And uh, the babies so far, one of them is an extreme runner, really, really fast, just trying to catch them, but not a biter, not a rattler, not a hisser. And then the other one is a little bit more laid back, a little bit of a runner, but really she was just... Uh, pretty much chilling out so maybe a little bit more fun of an animal to to mess around with and we do have ryan back Fuck, welcome goddamn phone overheated i've never had to do that before uh but i've never done this live video shit like this for, for that long before either so it might do it again i don't know it's hot in my hand <laughs> you gotta keep that that room warm man I, yeah, fuck, dude. My house is always 80 degrees. Got crocodiles in the living room and dumb shit. But, yeah. <laughs> How's the pig doing? Great, man. She's asleep already. I got her lights out and everything already. It's fucking dark over there right now. So I guess pig. explain who pig yeah. is. The pig is a very large diamond caiman that lives in my living room and watches TV with us every evening. Uh, <laughs> she she was named Pig by Andy's daughter, who named her such because she thought we were going to pick up a pig that day instead of a crocodile. So when we loaded up the crocodile, we said, "Hey, what do you want to name it?" Just Pig, because she was really just mad she didn't get a pig. I think <laughs> so. It's been Pig ever since. And she always asks how Pig's doing. <laughs> Both are believable. I could see you also having a pig. So, oh, I do have a pig, and it just had piglets. So, <laughs> anybody trying to buy some coon coon crosses? We're also selling piglets now. Shit. <laughs> so what do what do these pigs do? Uh, they're like a miniature pig species. They're like true small like pigs. That, 
Uh, yeah, they're really pet quality pigs. That's all these are. A uh, coon coon is like a 200 pound pig from New Zealand, and then they're crossed with a Julianne, which is like another like 150 pound pig. So they're just like kind of small pigs in general. They're they're pet pigs. Really. Only 150 pounds. Yeah, compared to like you know 800 pound pot belly. and you got fucking chickens and free-range toke geckos and uh yeah you know once in a while i still see my tokes around man not not super often anymore i think they've kind of migrated under the house at this point yeah oh there go my headphones working again yeah 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 we're we're crazy i need more tokes for the house for sure fucking that's good bug control So do you like, uh, are you now breeding your own rats and rodents and all that good stuff? Yeah, we have a very large rat shop out there. I turned my big covered awning I had off the side of my house into a rat shop. I've probably got like, I don't know, 60 bins or so now, like all set up and rolling. And we're just trying to grow that as large as I can. I'm not trying to be fucking big cheese or anything, but I'd like to be able to take care of like three or four of my close fucking good clients around here. And that'll just pay for my own feed bill and stuff like that, basically, at the end of the day. It's, it's pretty much the goal. If I can get to where I'm pumping out 1,500, 2,500 pups or whatever. That's that's a little money in the bank and free food. And we're we're doing pretty good around here then, and that's that's just money that's consistent too. You're not out making sales like fucking snake sale shit. Dude, I mean, explain how important it is to have rats and rodents oh, on hand. Fuck, man, fucking when you're dealing own. with hatchlings and stuff, man, you got stuff in shed and stuff not eating. You don't want to drive an hour fucking or two hours or have to deal with ordering shit all the fucking time every time you need six fucking pinkies or whatever the hell. Or In my case, every time you need 60 fucking pinkies or 120 fucking pinkies or whatever the fuck it is that week, you know? For sure, it's, it's very nice to have that stuff on hand. And I mean, cost wise, I think I've, I've heard you say before the number of uh, how expensive it is to grow up a female retic. Oh, fuck. It's insane, man. I, I would say people are crazy, man. People are always trying to like, you know, get a normal for as cheap as they can. If you can't afford that hundred dollar normal, you can't afford to house and keep it the first year of her life female for sure man i mean just flat out like tub side you're gonna go from like a hatchling tub to a v18 tub to a v70 tub to a four foot enclosure to a six foot enclosure a female might do that in 10 months that's fifteen hundred dollars in fucking caging you know what i'm saying fucking she probably ate fifteen hundred dollars in food in that amount of time uh i think my average girls man big girls they're costing me you know probably pretty fucking close to a grand a pop a year just to keep fed well and and that's the flip side of that too everybody i know that's always like not having very good success and not doing very well and they have these large collections you talk to them like oh i feed my girls every three four weeks you know i feed my girls once a month or oh i had a bad show this week so i'm not feeding my fucking fucking you know my females at the house or whatever the hell that's not how you have good successful seasons, man. If you're not pounding that girl those three or four month window at least while she's building up and trying to develop follicles and getting ready, man, they're just not going to cycle. These animals aren't fucking dumb. If their body doesn't have what it needs to get through a season, they're not going to cycle fucking flat out. They don't just get in there and fuck just to fuck fucking. It, it's about making babies. And fucking. If they don't think they can do it, they're not going to go through the motions for sure. Yeah. And that's something that obviously production at a certain extent comes out of feeding consistently. And Oh, for sure. 
Uh, Andy's got it going on right now. Fucking, you know, everybody, I'm sure you're aware you're in that. Like, about a year ago, the colubrid market, like, went flip side, upside down or some shit like that. Like, everybody that was big just wasn't producing. And then, like, the market got hot again. And everybody thinks that, like, right now I better buy all these adult colubrids and jump on the wagon real quick and pump out these colubrids because they're they're $100 again when they were $10 fucking six months ago or whatever the fuck. Well, he got into it like back again, you know, about the same time as we've watched four or five other of these little local breeders get into it at the same time. And Andy's got 60, 80, 150 fucking eggs in the incubator. Now he's just pumping out eggs nonstop. Every time I turn around, he's fucking got eggs again. And all these same guys that bought the same fucking animals the same time or they think they're busted all He's uh, going over there, and he's like, "Oh, you know, I got eighty eggs in the incubator." They're like, what? Well, I have shit going. My shit's still a little juvenile looking. Yeah, you gotta fucking feed the shit if you're gonna fucking breed it, dude. Fucking, you want to be a part of the marketplace? You gotta put it in to fucking get it back out. That's what nobody <laughs> understands. People are fucking stupid, dude. Fucking. Uh, oh, there's no way you got that many eggs. Yeah, because I fucking put two hundred dollars worth of fucking food in that girl. Where you put twenty five dollars worth of fucking pinkies in yours, and it's still a fucking neonate. You know, it's, it's fucking crazy. Imagine that. You feed them. They fucking do what you need them to do. Like fucking, <laughs> it's crazy. So man, we are almost double our allotted time. But is oh, there yeah, anything yeah. else? Is there anything else that you want to talk? I don't give a shit what it is or. <laughs> else you want to talk about. I don't know if you want to rant, you want to shit on someone. It doesn't matter. Oh man, I, I, I had a few in my head, but we we've we've got some good stuff out there tonight. I think <laughs> for sure, man. Always good talking to you, man. Fucking miss you guys fucking around here for sure, dude. Yeah. yeah, and uh everyone check out Ryan on Facebook as well as on YouTube and all that. But it will give the you a lot of his Facebook is like a portal into a different world. Where he just does his own thing, and it's fucking amazing. <laughs> I kind of break all the you, rules. Yes, he breaks <laughs> all the rules and will tell you everything. And uh, he's just a cool dude. And thank you I appreciate for uh, the kind words, man. For for being a cool all dude. You too, man. <laughs> for sure, it's been a pleasure getting to get to know you and Melissa both, man. And as far as we go, check us out on PortCityPythons.com. All that good stuff. Ryan, thanks again for hanging out. Hey, and y'all be good, man. I will catch everyone tomorrow. Hell yeah. Take it easy.